Chapter Thirty Five of Pipefuls. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Kirby Bonds. Pipefuls by Christopher Morley. Chapter Thirty Five Long Island Revisited. The anfractuosities of legal procedure having caused us to wonder whether there really were any such place as the home we have just bought, we thought we would go out to Salamis, Long Island, and have a look at it. Of course we knew it had been there a few weeks ago, but the title companies do confuse one so. We had been sitting for several days in the office of the most delightful lawyer in the world and if we did not fear that all the other harassed and beset creatures in these parts would instantly rush to lay their troubles in his shrewd and friendly bosom, we would mention his name right here, and do a little metrical pirouette in his honor. We had been sitting there, we say, watching the proceedings, without the slightest comprehension of what was happening. It is really quite surprising, let us add, to find how many people are suddenly interested in some quiet, innocent-looking shebang nestled off in a quiet dingle in the country, and how it is when it is to be sold. They all bob up from their converts in Flushing, Brooklyn, or Long Island City, and have to be satisfied. What floods of paper go crackling across the table, drawn out from these mysterious brown cardboard wallets. What quaint little jests pass between the emissaries of the title company and the legal counsel of the seller, jests that seem to bear upon the infirmity of human affairs and cause the well-wishing adventurer to wonder whether he had ever sufficiently pondered the strange tissue of moral uncertainties that hides behind every earthly venture. There was, for instance, the occasional reference to a vanished gentleman who had once crossed the apparently innocent proscenium of our estate and had skipped, leaving someone $6,000 to the bad. This ingenious buccaneer was, apparently, the only one who did not have to be satisfied. At any rate, we thought that we, who entered so modestly and obscurely into this whole affair, being only the purchaser, would finally satisfy oneself, too, by seeing if the property was still there. Long Island and Spring. The conjunction gives us a particular thrill. There are more beautiful places than the Long Island Flats, but it was there that we earned our first pay envelope. And it was there that we first set up housekeeping. And, as long as we live, the station platform of Jamaica will move us strangely, not merely from one train to another, but also inwardly. There is no soil that receives a more brimming benson of sunshine than Long Island in late April. As the train moves across the plain, it seems to swim in a golden tide of light. Billboards have been freshly painted and announced the glories of phonographs in screaming scarlets and purples, or the number of miles that divide you from a Brooklyn department store. 
out at hillside the stones that demarcate the territory of an old-fashioned house are new and snowily whitewashed at hollis the trees are a cloud of violent mustard yellow the color of a safety matchbox label magnolias if that is what they are are creamy pink moving vans are bustling along the road across the wide fields of bel-air there is a view of the brown woods on its ridge turning a faint olive as the leaves gain strength gus west's roadhouse at queen's looks inviting as of old and the red-brown of the copper beeches reminds one of the tall amber beakers here is the little park by the station in queen's the flag on the staff the forsythia bushes the color of scrambled eggs is it the influence of the belmont park racetrack there seems to be in the smoking cars a number of men having the air of those accustomed to associate in a not unprofitable way with horses here is one a handsome person who holds our eye as a bright flower might he wears a flowing overcoat of fleecy fawn color and a derby of biscuit brown he has a gray suit and joyful socks of heavy wool yellow and black and green in patterned squares which are so vivid they seem cubes rather than squares he has a close-cut dark mustache his shaven cheeks are a magnificent sirloin tint his chin splendidly blue by the ministrations of the razor his shirt is blue with a stripe of sunrise pink and the collar to match he talks briskly and humorously to two others leaning over the seat behind them as he argues we see his brown low shoe tapping on the floor one can almost see his foot think it pivots gently on the heel the toe wagging in the air as he approaches the climax of each sentence every time he drives home a point in his talk down comes the whole foot softly but firmly he relights his cigar in the professional manner not by inhaling as he applies the match but by holding the burned portion in the flame away from his mouth until it has caught his gold watch has a hunting case when he has examined it it shuts again with a fine rich snap which we can hear even above the noise of the car on this early morning train there are others voyaging for amusement here are two golfing zealots puffing pipes and discussing with amazing persistence the minutiae of their sport their remarks are addressed to a very fashionable looking curate whose manners are superb whether he is going to play golf we know not at any rate he smiles mildly and politely to all they say perhaps he is going round the course with them in the hope of springing some ecclesiastical strategy while they are softened and chastened by the glee of the game the name of their maker it is only fair to suspect has more than once been mentioned on the putting green and if it should slip out the curate will seize the cue and develop it in the meantime one of the enthusiasts 
while his companion is silenced in the act of lighting his pipe, is explaining to the cloth how his friend plays golf. "'I'll tell you how he plays,' he says. "'Imagine him sitting down in a low chair and swinging a club. Then take the chair away, and he still keeps the same position. That's what he looks like when he drives.' The curate smiles at this, and prepares his face to smile with equal gentleness when the other retorts. After Floral Park, the prospect becomes more plainly rural. The Mineola trolley zooms along, between wide fields of tilled brown earth. There is an occasional cow, here and there a really old barn and farmhouse standing. Incongruously, among the settlements of modern kindling wood cottages, and a mystery agricultural engine at work with a spinning flywheel. Against the bright horizon stands the profiles of Garden City, the thin cathedral spire, the bulk of St. Paul's School, the white cupola of the hotel. The tree-lined vistas of Mineola are placidly simmering in the morning sun. A white dog with erect and curly tail trots very purposefully around the corner of the First National Bank. We think that we see the spreading leaves of some rhubarb plants in a garden, and there are some of those, to us very enigmatic, as we are no gardener, little glass window frames set in the soil, as though a whole house, shamed by the rent the owner wanted to charge, had sunk out of sight, leaving only a skylight. As we leave Williston, we approach more interesting country with a semblance of hills and wooded thickets still brownly tapestried with the dry funeral of last year's leaves. On the trees the new foliage sways in little clusters, catching the light like the wings of perching green butterflies. Some of the buds are a coppery green, some a burning red, but the prevailing color is the characteristic sulfur yellow of early spring. And now we are set down at Salamis where the first and most surprising impression is of the unexpected abundance of competitive taxicabs. Having reached the terminus of our space, we can only add that we found our estate still there, and there are a few stalks of rhubarb surviving from an earlier plantation. End of chapter 35